0: After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Timonite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Neammathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house, and they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. And the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 donkeys, and he also had seven sons and three daughters and the first daughter he named Jemima, and the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died old, and full of years. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Kids Church and you may be seated. like a parade. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is our, I had Rosie count them, our 12th sermon in the book of Job this summer as we've sort of been walking through this wisdom book, um, having finished in the last summer's Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, the book of Job this summer, and then next summer, even now come Lord Jesus, the Song of Songs, which I doubt we'll get 12 sermons out of. uh, as the church shrinks, as it goes on. Um, but but uh, one of the things as we look at the book of Job is it's got this plot that, that is sort of in chapters 1 and 2, and then this, this prose, sort of again, epilogue in chapter 42, and then these long poetic dialogues in the middle. And they kind of have um, similarities and differences within them and raise different questions. For instance, if the frame story was was older than the, the writing of the book of Job, you'd have just that first challenge where God, um, Job is good and upright, uh, he fears the Lord and shuns evil, as it's said in that first chapter, and then he is tested with the loss of all his goods and his family, and then... Um, maintains his faith, maintains his integrity is the word that the book of Job is using uh, to describe his faithfulness. And then the, again, he struck uh, this time personally, but not to the point of death, and he maintains his integrity. Um, it would make sense then for this prose section that Chris read for us this morning at the end, that then he has passed the test. He has given back his restoration. He has done that. And yet the book of Job, as we have it, has these long poetic things in the middle that question meaning, existence, the order of things are, a poem in chapter 28 about what wisdom is and where do we go to find it and where is it in its depths. It has all these different questions that come out in that middle section, um, which is the bulk of the book of Job. Um, And so we have these simple sort of folk tale, chapters 1 and 2, the end of 42, and this long sort of meandering journey in which we asked many different questions about how is it God relates to the world? And not only that, um, as Job and his friends dialogue for um, many chapters felt like it went on for too long um, from chapter three, because it, what happens is in chapter three sorry, in chapter three, Job brings forth his own lament: "I curse the day of my birth." I wish I had never been here, and I wish I could go to the realm of the dead where I could hide from existence as such. Chapter 4 is where it begins the dialogue with his friends, and they begin sort of speaking kindly to Job. Um, But their universe, their worldview, their understanding of the way in which the world is structured is pretty simple in the sense of good people do good things, and they're rewarded as such. Bad people obviously, do bad things, and they are punished as such. And so this sort of um, basic view of the universe is what they begin to question with Job because Job represents an affront to that. They start kindly sort of with this idea of that it'll work out because you are a good person. But as Job, again, maintains his integrity, I've done nothing wrong. I don't deserve this. The divine scales have been weighted against me. His friends ramp up because in the midst of suffering, for those of us not suffering, often the person who is in pain or in anguish becomes a test of our own worldview. When we suffer ourselves, sometimes we lack the capacity to do that. It's sort of like, I just need to get through this and move on. But, but when we sit with other sufferers, it raises questions, particularly innocent sufferers, or, or if um, having been a pastor long enough, Sitting with somebody who's suffering whereas it's like, I kind of know this person pretty well, and there is no way they deserve this. I mean, I deserve more what they're getting. Um, raises questions about how you understand the world. Now, the one in the book of Job, which is called sort of um, retribution, retribution, <laughs> yes, theology, <laughs> is, is very simple and basic. And yet what I've tried to suggest throughout the sermon series is we all have our own structures upon which we build the meaning of the universe. And while Job's friends have truth within theirs, that is actually one of the things, God doesn't entirely repudiate uh, or deny their, their way of understanding the world, but sort of makes it more complex than that. And so one of the questions we have as we come to the book of Job is when our structures of belief or the deals we've made with God or the deals we've made in how we understand the world, when they're broken and shattered, how is it we respond to those? Um, how is it we move through processing our own pain in light of that? Job's friends then ramp up their attacks against Job because if Job is right, it's attack against their belief system. Now, most of us know people don't like that. Um, uh, even if they're right, even if they're, I- particularly if they are right. I think that's one of the times when we really don't like our system's um, Challenge the most because Job's friends have this sense in which they began with. Job has not done something that bad. They begin to say maybe there's secret sins, maybe there's this. But what Job then shifts to around chapter 10 is this idea that the in the heavens there must be an advocate or a courtroom or a place in which this can get sorted out. As he talks about that, he moves through sort of like Um, saying that couldn't work, God would overwhelm me, I need an angel to stand with me, this sort of thing. He moves through sort of this phase, but he begins to imagine that perhaps there could be a way in conducting this, and there would be an advocate in heaven who would sort things out for Job. Friends don't like this either, but needless to say, that's sort of this sort of way in which it comes, and it comes all the way to this, this section of meaning that we'll get to at the end, which is a chapter after the poem about wisdom in chapter 29 Job describes his blessed life. In chapter 30, he describes his lost life, all the things that he's lost. And in 31, in the place where most of us hope new meaning and new life, where that uh, home exile, return to home uh, movement can happen, that, that um, garden uh, brokenness, redemption, redemption, where, where we expect some sort of movement for this thing to move forward into more meaning, Job lets out his final lament, his cry in 31, to sort of say that this is where I stand, let the Almighty answer me. Then Elihu comes, and I don't want to talk about him anymore, <laughs> um, but he has his own answers. Um, he's the youngest. He might be the only one who looks um, like a Jew in this situation. All the uh, It's generally assumed that the characters in the book of Job are all... Uh, um, like Noah. They are people who existed long before, and they're in this par- parable like form or, or, or um, story form um, in which they don't have the law of the Old Testament. They don't, it's, like I often say, they don't call God by the revealed name to Moses. Um, they don't use the same language for God, they use other words, El Shaddai often um, Elohim, all these other words for God, only the redemptive name for God, the one revealed to Moses, is used from the whirlwind and by the prose narrator. Um, And then neither do they ever raise the hope, which we have as full readers of the canon, that God hears the cries of the oppressed in Egypt, or that there is a future day in which we shall be at a promised land, or, and this is relevant to today's text, they never really quite even raised the question of, like, have you been to the temple recently? Have you offered sacrifices properly? Which suggests they knew what sacrifices were, as Job offers them in this passage. But the um, what scholars call the cultic system, the system of how to properly sacrifice at a temple or a synagogue, has not been established yet. Which all the more makes Job wisdom for everyone, in that weird sense. It's got this way of being this book for people who are just trying to discern what the nature of reality is without all of that redemptive history. In some sense, also, you're limited in that way by not having the redemptive history. But if all you had was these things, what would you come to? And so we walked with Job, and he hears at the end this speech from God from the whirlwind. Um, And God uh, takes Job first sort of on a tour of the universe um, from the stars that shout for joy, to where hail is stored, to where um, uh, where animals give birth. He's even got this weird thing with the lion and uh, uh, the raven who feed. It's, it, they're, they're sort of these proud animals, but the question God raises for Job is, are you the one who prepares food for them? Are you the one, and this is one of my favorite parts, who causes rain to fall where grass goes where it is not for profit? Like, who sustains the earth in these other ways. He brings Job on this tour to raise all these questions about what does he know about the meaning of all things. And what happens is what I tried to argue in this sort of thing is in this first speech is he um, shows Job that the universe isn't only governed by justice or chaos or order, but it's also governed by delight and joy and wonderment. And and um, as I was thinking about it this week, is that the book of Job kind of says that order uh, places Job and us, I think, in this place in which we stand in between order and delight. Um, or we stand in between order and chaos, and we find sort of meaning in that spot. I mean, so the ostrich, one of my favorite parts that we've talked about as well, is this one who Job earlier in the book says, I belong with the ostrich that sort of cackles in the desert and weighs away. And God, when he describes the ostrich, ostrich, first shames him, <laughs> which was common at the time, but then says that its cries are like songs of joy. God's relationship to creation is one in which delight might win over justice sometimes. Job here then responds that I've spoken once, I've spoken twice, I shall speak no more, Um, which isn't, it seems, where God wants to leave Job. And so he brings him on a second sort of tour, one in which he talks first about, are you willing to make me guilty to maintain your innocence? Are you going to make God guilty, because that's going to work out for you, developing meaning in the long term, a guilty God, to maintain your innocence? And he talks to him about the structure of the world. Will your right hand be able to save? Next, he goes on these two sort of mythic beasts, the Leviathan and the Behemoth. Um, uh, One sort of a land beast, the Behemoth, one a water beast, the Leviathan. Um, And these are sort of agents of chaos in the ancient Near East, particularly many of the ancient... um, uh, origin stories like the Enuma, Elish, and others portray sort of the gods as having to subdue a sea beast in order to make the world. Notably, all of those stories revolve around a large amount of violence, whereas the biblical creation story revolves around a large amount of peace, and the Lord saw it and declared it was good. The Lord saw it and he declared it was good, and does not create out of the dead carcass of another god, which is the epic of Gilgamesh in some ways. So we have um, rival stories about how the universe is ordered but by using these two beasts in this way is is he raises the question for job is that there are these elements of of trial and chaos in the world and with the behemoth it becomes like a pet to god and the leviathan becomes this thing in which god is able to take joy in. again delight sort of shows up delight and wonder become the answer to job's problems which is not the answer we want um but I think it's the only answer that I think we can have in this world, is that this idea is that if everything is meant to work out, particularly from my own frame of reference, inevitably the script, the story, whatever belief system you've built like Job's friends is going to fail. And what are you going to do after that failure happens? This brings us to Job's second confession of faith, which I think is the hinge of the book, uh, I know that you can do all things. No purposes of your you commu- be thwarted. You asked, who is this who obscures my plan without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things, and this is, I think, the crux of this part of this passage, things too wonderful for me. The solution to Job's anguish and sitting there in this ash heap is that he has been witness now to things that are too wonderful for him. You said, listen, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My eyes had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. We paired that with the First Corinthians 13 reading that we all hear at weddings, um, that now I see in it near dimly, then I shall see face to face that Job is one who is seen dimly in a mirror, but through God meeting him and showing him, uh, asking him, as I wrongly said the first time, rhetorical questions, but existential questions. Where were you when I did this? Are you able to do this? Is this the structure in which you would design? He asks them these questions. Um, he brings them to the spot where he says, I had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Things too wonderful for me. Things I had heard about, but now that I see, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Um, last week, and we talked about—I talked about this a lot with—in I guess—in the sharing time and in the week after. Lots of people had questions because I proposed, and multiple scholars did that. the The better way to translate the end of this is: "Therefore, I despise myself and repent of dust and ashes." particularly because Job hasn't done anything wrong. We're going to find out in the passage that Chris read that we're going to walk through today. Job has not done any wrong, and he's even spoken rightly of God where his friends have not. Job, who really challenges the Almighty in various ways and says things that sound unorthodox is proclaimed by God at the end as the one who has spoken rightly, which seems to suggest spoken rightly in relationship, not always rightly in belief, but nonetheless, he has nothing to repent of. Um, and so what I tried to propose and and, uh, Tremper Longman who I took Old Testament with and if you have a New Living Translation he translated the wisdom literature for the New Living Translation he actually translated the way it is up here repent in dust and ashes but in his commentary makes the same interpretation I have so if you don't like of you can still say what he's repenting of is this mindset of dust and ashes what happens is Job has moved into his suffering is all of his suffering has become the center of the world for him, so much so that nothing else can exist. This is why God's way of, of doing therapy for Job is to show him everything else that does exist and bring him to the mystery of those things and the wonder of those things. Now, one of the things I forgot to say last week, but I think is... Um, highly relevant to this sort of interpretation here is a woman, um, it was another pastor's commentary, he was talking about a woman whose son had died in a drunk driving accident where the other person was drunk. And she read these last speeches from God at the end of the book of Job before the funeral. And the pastor, as pastors should do, asked why, um, instead of trying to give an interpretation or ignore that, um, asked why, and she said, I needed to know that there was more in the world than my pain. What Job repents of, perhaps, is that all he knew of the world for 40 chapters was his pain. He did not speak wrongly of God. He proclaimed and wanted a relationship with this God through the use of the advocate language or the courtroom language. But all he could see in the world was his pain. And what I think the book of Job raises for us in that first before this prose ending, is that there is more to the world than our demands for justice, demands for pain, or, or for order. Um, there's more to the world than when we what we might feel is our pain, and then for our right to have that, that cared for, that there is more there. Last week, I mentioned that, that great New Testament teaching is that can you rejoice with those who rejoice, and sit in sorrow with those who are in sorrow, and, and in that idea in which that if there's more to the world, can I rejoice with the people who are rejoicing even though it is not my victory? Can I mourn with those who mourn knowing that their mourning is not my mourning? Can we move in those ways? Essentially, that's part of those lectures from God to the, uh, those questions, this existential bringing about for Job is can you see that there's more here what you intimately experience and feel. Can you find more than that? So Job is is repenting of the mindset that locked him into only that frame. Which brings us to today's. uh, This this was the quote on the back of the bulletin last week, and it is this week because I didn't use it, but this is where I want to end sort of the first 41 chapters, but what is it Job has understood that justice does not reign in the world created? No. The truth is he has grasped and that has lifted him up to the level of competition is it is justice alone does not have the final say about how we are to speak of God. Only when we have come to realize that God's love is freely bestowed do we enter fully and definitively into the presence of God of faith. Grace is not opposed to the quest of justice, nor does it play it down. On the contrary, it gives it its full meaning. God's love, like all true love, operates in a world not of cause and effect, but of freedom and gratuitousness. That is how persons successfully encounter one another in a complete and unconditional way, without payment of any kind of charges and and externally exposed obligations, that pressure them into meeting the expectations. What Job finds in the end is what he wants to be the highest good of the world does not reign, but it is in fact God who in relationship reigns with us. That God in his tour brings Job into relationship in a different way. Which brings us to today's ending to the book of Job. Um, Part of it I was thinking about as as I sat with it this week, is how much different the book would be without this ending. Because the ending that a lot of us needed, particularly in the modern world, um, uh, is that one of repentance. Job has changed. That's the point of the story. But Job's story has a much interesting, much more interesting ending than that. Um, And so we go back to the prose Narrator, after the Lord had said these things, he said to Eliphaz the termite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Their friends, um, I have three siblings. Um, if my parents were to come to me and say, while we were gone, Matt has spoken rightly what you should do, and your three siblings, in the wrong, how much power would I have? Um, And how much would they be um, knowledgeable of, oh, we have done wrong. Um, Now, Job's friends, um, while they come as comforters, they sit for seven days with him, which I think is in silence, which is powerful, Um, and they don't speak until Job speaks. I think they deserve more credit than they get, but they find that they've been just defenders of the way the universe is, how order should be, and they find out they are wrong. And They don't just find out they're wrong in the sense of like two plus two equals four. The almighty God himself speaks that you are in the wrong. It's a terribly dark place to be in. And with Job, I tried to suggest this before, in speaking rightly about God, it seems like he's spoken relationally right about God and retaining connection to God through his suffering. And in fact, Job's desire for an advocate in heaven is what God is for Job. Job has been his, or God has been Job's advocate in heaven the whole time. If you considered my servant Job, there is no one on earth like him doesn't turn out the way that Job would want an advocate in heaven to be. That's a different question. But Job has spoke rightly because there is one in heaven who is doing these things. I'm angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. First Solution is to take um, some of your wealth, and it seems like there's some interpreters that, that look at Job and his friends sort of as three sort of kings or governors. They all seem to have wealth. They all seem to have wisdom, and so they come together, and so take some of your wealth and offer it up um, God. This is the way in which they understand sacrifice in the book of Job and um, that they hope that the scent of such a burnt sacrifice rises to God and brings pleasing to him. But what it's interestingly enough, the second part, and then my servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. First, go and offer a sacrifice. Burn your seven bowls and seven rams so that they're their um, smoke rises up to the heavens and you see that as penance for the way in which you have misspoke. But two, seek reconciliation relationally with Job. And then Job will pray for you. And then I will not deal with you according to your folly. One of the most common statements that people use from the New Testament that comes from two of the Gospels um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself, is evidence in this scene. Offer your sacrifice up to God, and then go to your neighbor, and oftentimes, I don't think we practice this enough, go to your neighbor and confession that you have done wrong, which is another way of restoring relationship. Loving our neighbor all the time is doing something for them is great. Telling your neighbor you might have been wrong, and by neighbor, this could be a coworker, not everybody's favorite to confess to, um, uh, a friend, a family member, um, that you were in the wrong. Um, it's not the way in which we deal with things very often. And yet Job is commanded to pray for him. Um, New Testament passage that I think relates to us is Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, Father, forgive my friends they knew not what they were doing. And in fact, this is the scary part, I think, of the Bible often, is that they thought they were doing the right thing. I mean, so often in the world, we worry about people who know they're doing the wrong thing, getting caught doing the wrong thing, when in fact, the last century, um, 1901 to 1999, revealed often that those who think they're doing the right thing are more dangerous. Um, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so uh, Eliphaz, the Termite, Bildad, the Shua, and Zophar, the Naamite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. This is another example of Job maintaining his integrity, of being able to pray for those who failed him as well. Job is upright and blameless, fears God, and shuns evil, and there's none like him in all the land. He's one who is able, unlike me with my siblings, to offer penance for them because they didn't understand, whereas I'd be like, I don't know, throw the book at them. Um, God does not demand that he gives them this prayer. Job does it freely and offers this prayer, and his friends are restored. After Job prayed for his friends, following the order here, Job's The Lord restores his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. After reconciliation is found between God and Job and his two wonderful, um, I repent of dust and ashes, relationally with his friends, his fortunes are restored. As Jonathan read for us this morning from Psalm 136, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we are like those who dreamed. God restores the fortunes of Job. Um, and so often, I think, in reading the book of Job, because we, memorize, we know like the base outline of the book of Job often as Christians or even just culturally, it sounds like this is... Um, God has not been kind to Job. The game that he played with the Hasatan, the accuser, is now over and Job gets his things back. Um, but if you read it canonically with that prayer or that psalm in mind, that that exile, that brokenness, that the story of our lives in which we um, find suffering, that we can pray in anticipation of the day when the Lord restored our fortunes. We were like those who dreamed. Or that that psalm ends with that those who went out carrying tears came back with sheaves of food. And the tears were the planting of that. I don't think the Job's restored fortunes here are just a simple sort of like, no harm, no foul, game over. Here's your stuff back, but double. Um, Forgive me. Um, But more a sense in which this is the way the biblical corpus asks us to dream. That God will restore that which we lose in this life. And if you think about your pain and your hurt and what you've lost and what you've broken and what's been broken unto you to pray and see for that restoration is surely a grand hope and good news that shouldn't be let go of. After this, uh, it it says they were restored twice to him. Um, There's a teaching in the book of Exodus that if you steal somebody's property or harm it, you have to pay back double. That's a, that's a bizarre interpretation of this scene, if you want to apply that, is God has taken Job's stuff, and if humanity has replied to pay it back double, so too has God. Um, all his brothers and sisters and everyone before him came and ate with him in his house, and they comforted and consoled him all over the trouble the Lord had brought on him and gave him each a piece of silver and a gold ring. That they come back together and they have a meal together. They eat in his house and they comfort and console. Um, What is it? Compassion and and, um, consoling are both words that mean to suffer alongside. That the friends he has now come and suffer alongside him what has happened to him. Um, And they come and they eat together. Obviously, Um, At Defiance Church, we center communion every Sunday in our worship space. And it is this meal, too, that we come together for. Um, It is this meal, too, that brings uh, healing and wholeness into our lives. And they have a meal together, and they each give him an offering, silver and a gold ring. Many things were said about this, and nobody really wanted to stand on a solid interpretation. Um, Although it does seem that Job's friends came Job lamented the day he was born, and they said, let's fight about that. And these different friends come, and Job says, and Job has lost all of his wealth, all of his material, and they give him something, which is similar, I think, sometimes that when we're asked to help people in the problems that they're confronting in life, um, I'm thirsty. Well, let's talk about why you didn't prepare for your thirst rather than here's some water. Here's something to drink. Job's friends, these, and it might be the friends he had, it's never quite clear, but they come and they give him a piece of silver and a gold ring as sort of this way of, of building relationship, I think, back up in the way in the world in which it should be. The, the Lord blessed the latter parts of Job's life more than the former. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. This is double the original. And this is everybody, not everybody, many people... Um, Uh, the kids in Job are a big question for people um, often, Uh, so we get to the kids now, and he also had seven sons and three daughters. He had seven sons before and three daughters before this happened, and they're killed when the house collapses on them when they're coming together for a celebration in Job 2. So God does not double the amount of children he has. First, because doubling children doesn't bring the doubled the joy in some sense i mean that's uh, it's both funny but also like a, like it wouldn't be true that like i lost all my children now i have twice as much that wouldn't be that wouldn't resolve the loss of children um uh and so job is given back um children in this way but in an in an odd way cuz you would assume he liked, and he did offer sacrifices for his original kins when they would go into, um, uh, when they would party. Um, He loved those kids, and now he has three or seven and three again. Um, Now, there is an interpretation that um, uh, was like dead certain I put it in here. Yes, uh, in the NASB, which is a more literal translation, in the original one, Job's had seven uh, sons and three daughters were born to him. In the epilogue, he also had seven sons and three daughters. Rabbis use this, some rabbis use this to say that these are the restored children that he had. Most English translations do not catch that he had seven sons born to him, because we know how kids come into the world. The born is unnecessary. But in the Hebrew, it would be that they were born to him, and he also has seven sons and three daughters in the epilogue, that they've been restored to him in that way. Now, either way, um, this is the hope in which Christians have, is that we hope for a resurrected and renewed humanity. Um, We hope for the restoration of all things. We hope for this goodness. Um, And so there's two ways of sort of looking at the meaning of the children. One is in which they are restored to him, in hope of that future day as we have as Christians in which all kids will be raised and restored to their parents. Um, Particularly in the ancient Near East, the stories of lost children would be common. Um, Kids lost in childbirth, kids lost early on to illness, kids lost to this. Lost children would be one of the most common stories. So to have the hope of those being restored is a great hope at that. But the second is, if they are resurrected, children, the children he had, if the rabbi's interpretation in some sense has some right, they still die again, but they point towards that future day as well, that we have that coming for us as well. But the more amazing part is Job's daughters. Now the message is the only English translation that kept captures this, is that their names are the hard words that Chris said, but what the names actually mean are his first daughter was Dove, the second daughter Cinnamon, and the third daughter Dark Eyes, or in some sense Horn of Eyeshadow, um, which is a strange name for a daughter. Um, uh, Maybe it's Maybelline. Um, That I just thought of right then, and I'm ashamed of myself for it. Yep, there, Carla, boo, hiss, throw a vegetable, get him off the stage. Job's daughter's names, his sons are never named, are these names sort of, of of beauty in a broken world. His names, if you think of the tour that God took him on to bring him to wonder, to say this is all too wonderful me, the restored names of Job's daughters is one that strikes of beauty in a world of so much pain. Job knows that it's a world of pain. As I was thinking about this, and I think Emily and I were talking about the barbecue, is is the the story of the prodigal son. God has this relationship with these two sons, and when they come back, um, the one comes back who spent his money um, out, the text says in wild living, Um, And he comes back, and the son rejoices over him, and he slaughters the fattened calf for his return home, which seems totally insane. You've given him half of your wealth. He's essentially said, I wish you were dead, by asking for his inheritance early. And when he returns home, what you do is you kill the most precious thing that you have for a big feast for this one who already asked if you were dead. Um, Job sees that God acts in that way that God's restoration is over the top in ways that we would protest. This comes to head in some of Jesus' parables where um, the, wa- the, wages, uh, the day wagers are paid what they are given, um, the ones who come in the first hour, and the one that come with only an hour left are given the same fee, and the ones who got there early think it's unjust, even though they're given what they were, were, were supposed to be given, that this God doesn't seem to play with material the same way we do. Or what I've been trying to propose is that order, and justice, and fairness aren't the only things that there are. Dove, cinnamon, dark eyes, eyeshadow, are the names that come to Job for his daughters after this. That that uh, there was not a country, a woman in the country, as beautiful as Job's daughters. Their father treated them as equals with their brothers, providing them with the same inheritance. The bounty in which Job receives, he extends to his daughters as well, which is not exactly typical in this time. And in some ways, it gives them freedom to marry in a different way. They don't need the same sort of dowry system to be um, eligible to marry, but they have their own provision. Um, they can live and move in the world in a different way. Um, and so these are the names he gives his daughters. Um, after this, Job lived 140 years, 70 times 70. Um, that's, sevens are big biblical numbers. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. In the Bible, a good life is seeing your children, seeing their grandchildren, three generations, so that the idea that he sees to the fourth generation is, is the point, well... Great, great grandchildren is, is what Job gets. And he died an old man full of years. Thus brings us to the end of Job today. Um, there's one last thing I want to say as we end. What Jonathan read, or Emily read from us from the uh, Gospel of Luke, is this passage in which there is a hemorrhaging woman, and Jesus is supposed to go and heal Jairus' daughter. And she touches his cloak, and he says, Who is it who touched me? I felt the power go out of me. And she says to him, it was I, and she says, I was healed. And he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. It's at this moment that servants from Jairus arrive, and they come to him, and they say that your daughter is dead. We as Christians live in this gap too, I think. We live in the sense in which we have been near to Jesus, that Christ has touched us, and that we have been healed. Daughter and son, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And yet that is not the only world we live in. We live in a world in which the pronouncement of death often comes as well. Your daughter is dead, your son is dead, your marriage is broken, you're fired, all these other things that happen to us in the world. We've come near to a God whom we touch and we are healed. And this is part of the wonderment and beauty of that which we exist in. And yet we also have these newses that break into the world, there's been a fire in Hawaii, whatever it is, that proclaim to us as well, death still has some place here. What happens is, in that story, is Jesus makes the journey then all the way to their house. He says the girl is not dead, but asleep, which causes people to laugh. And then he goes into the room and wakes her up. But in the meantime, in between that, he says, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. There's a place to end the book of Job for today. It's that we exist in this spot of hearing that we've been healed from Christ. That death still has news in the world as Job experiences. But what remains for us is to not be afraid. That Frederick Buechner quote we used, um, here is the world, terrible things will happen, beautiful things will happen Don't be afraid. Just believe, and this is the hardest part, but that we await that fullness of time when all things shall be renewed, Uh, which I think is the portrait the book of Job paints for us in the end. Let us pray. God, you have called us on this journey with your servant Job. We've seen how he was upright and blameless and feared the Lord and shunned evil and lived in communion with you. And so he was stricken to see if he fears God for nothing. As we have been on this journey, we have found that Job, while he has spoken correctly of you, has also been one who has faith for no reason other than to have faith in communion with you. And so he finds himself confronted with you and revealed to a cosmos that is so wonderful, one that you take delight in, one in you which give over-the-top provision for, so repents of living in dust and ashes. And so, too, he finds restoration with his friends and with the community that surrounds him, and restoration given from you in the gifts of herds and flocks and children again. And Job, on the other side of his suffering, can name his three daughters after objects of beauty in the world and restore them in the same way that his sons are as well. So God, we pray that this story might teach and guide us and more importantly, open our eyes to seeing the pattern of your son in the world as well one who also suffered unjustly, one who brings reconciliation to friends and community, one who blesses us with a meal, one who promises us the resurrection of the dead and the life of a world to come. May we not be afraid and believe, because faith will heal. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.